welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 15th, 2023. I'm your reader, Sharon Falduno, and from the front page of today's Gazette, C60 warnings began years before Marengo Blast by Aaron Jordan of the Gazette. The same month, C60 founder Howard C. Brand III told Iowa officials his shingle recycling business had a clean bill of health in other states. He was facing extradition from Iowa to Texas on criminal charges that included illegal dumping of shingles. Brand and his company now have been sued by the Iowa Attorney General to try to force him to comply with an emergency order to clean up petroleum products and other toxic chemicals at the site of a December 8, 2022 explosion in Marengo. The clock is ticking because while most of the contaminants are corralled in a retention basin for now, Marengo this spring will need to release water into the Iowa River, which supplies drinking water to downstream communities, including Iowa City. The question that continues to resurface since the blast that injured up to 15 people and forced an evacuation of nearby homes is whether local, state, or federal officials could have done more to prevent it. Brand was on regulators' radar more than two years before the explosion, a Gazette review shows, and red flags continue to pop up about his operations. Iowa and federal officials communicated about his environmental problems in other states, but apparently didn't understand the risks of the Iowa operation and did not force the issue. Now, it's pretty clear to me they could have demanded more information a bit sooner, but they kept going. They kept going by and not seeing anything happen. Shannon Rossler, a University of Iowa professor of environmental or natural resources law, said about the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, do we give them the benefit of the doubt? I don't know. Local, state, and national officials share responsibility for making sure businesses and people don't pollute the water, soil, or air. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Region 7 office in Kansas City sent a letter to C60 on December 3, 2020, in response to the facility's plan to take used and off-spec shingles and return them to their base ingredients for reuse, the Iowa DNR noted in a December 15 emergency order. Later in December 2020, the EPA's Region 8 in Denver got in touch with Region 7 and told it about some environmental issues with brand and previous versions of his company, the EPA told the Gazette. Colorado regulators determined brand technologies was violating the Federal Solid Waste Disposal Act by stockpiling asphalt shingles at a site in Windsor, Colorado. He later moved shingles to Florence, Colorado, more than two hours away, which also was a violation if done without a permit, Laura Dixon, spokesperson for the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, told the Gazette last month. Region 7 shared this information with its state partners, and IDNR was working to assure the facility's compliance prior to the December 8th incident, the EPA said. EPA and state partners coordinate closely to protect human health and the environment and prioritize compliance. That communication between the EPA and Iowa DNR happened January 6, 2021, the EPA said. The department staff based in Washington, Iowa, started trying to get in contact with Brand in spring 2021. When officials drove by the Marengo site, they didn't see any piles of shingles outside. Based on the DNR's conversations with other parties in the other states, the DNR's initial concern with the C60 operation was the stockpiling of shingles as a solid waste disposal matter, the department said. Additional concerns developed as the DNR learned more about the alleged operation and the company's operations in other states. But there were other warnings. In the month since the fire, Brand has declined requests to talk with the Gazette and other media outlets. C60 spokesman Mark Corallo said Friday that Brand would not be available for an interview. 
On April 30, 2021, the Iowa County Sheriff's Office arrested Brand during a traffic stop at the C-60 site based on a warrant from Texas. Texas had charged Brand with being a fugitive from justice related to 2019 charges of theft of 2,500 to less than 30,000 and illegal dumping over 1,000 pounds, according to records in Bexar County, Texas, and Iowa County. Brand was booked into the Iowa County Jail, and Magistrate Candace Smolick decided May 3, 2021, to hold him without bail until May 10, 2021, so Texas could make plans to move him back to Bexar County. But on May 5, 2021, Brand was released after Texas officials said they did not plan to extradite. A few days later, on May 13, 2021, Brand told Iowa DNR officials in a phone call his business was not subject to Iowa solid waste or other regulations and that it had a clean bill of health in other states where it had previously operated, including Texas, Louisiana, and Colorado. The department told Brand it would be necessary to set up a meeting to discuss the company's permitting requirements prior to operations commencing. The DNR agency asked again in June 2021 for a meeting. The meeting was finally scheduled for September 20, 2021, but C-60 canceled it. The criminal charges against Brand were dismissed January 27, 2022, in exchange for Brand paying a $27,500 administrative penalty for dumping used shingles in Elmendorf, Texas, said Gary Rasp, a spokesman for the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. C-60 had a small fire on October 25th, which the Marengo Fire Department put out. It was the same kind of fire, said Mark Swift, treasurer for the Volunteer Fire Department, meaning the smaller blaze also involved chemicals being used in the building. The Gazette asked the Iowa DNR on December 12th and 13th, as well as again on Friday, whether the agency knew about the October 25th fire. Spokeswoman Tammy Krausman did not respond. Brand has a patent application, US 11548189B2, that describes in depth the process he planned to use to employ proprietary chemicals to dissolve shingles into oil, sand, and fiberglass. Some environmental regulations run on the honor system. Certain types of businesses are required to get state or federal permits, but some fly under the radar, especially in rural areas. There are fewer people who might be seeing the pollution, said Michael Schmidt, attorney for the Iowa Environmental Council. The Iowa DNR did a satellite study of animal confinements in the state in 2017, and it discovered an additional 5,000 operations, some of which were large enough that their owners should have applied for construction permits. This example comes to mind when Schmidt thinks of the potential peril of rural regulation. If you never apply, the state doesn't know that you should be reporting, he said. While Marengo officials knew a new company had taken over the industrial site near the fairgrounds on East South Street, the city doesn't have a building inspection department and relies on the state for environmental regulation. Local emergency responders did not know what kind of chemicals were stored at the site or what was in the solvent that ignited the December 8th fire. Those descriptions would likely have been part of the permitting process if it had happened. The city now has a contaminated site where the cleanup timeline is uncertain and Iowa emergency responders have $600,000 in damaged gear after fighting the petroleum and chemical fire. Research confirms poor air quality and water quality disproportionately harms communities of color and low-income communities. Isolated rural communities are potentially vulnerable in the same respect, the UI's Rossler said. C60 should never have brought chemicals or shingles on site without the appropriate permits, she said. This is an egregious example of non-compliance with regulatory laws and policies, she said. Turning to the Iowa Today section, Sheriff's Group spends little on charity. Third of donations since 2016 goes to Stated Purpose by Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. 
Less than 34% of the $2.6 million Iowans have donated to an Iowa sheriff's group in recent years have been used for the stated purpose of training officers and helping underprivileged children. Newly disclosed tax filings by the Iowa State Sheriff's and Deputies Association Institute indicate the organization raised more money in 2021 than at any time in the past 20 years. The records indicate Iowans donated $525,083 in 2021, a 22% increase over the previous year. Iowans who donate to the Institute typically are told their money will be used to provide critical support and training for law enforcement and will help send underprivileged children to camp and provide support for the Iowa Special Olympics. Since 2016, Iowans have given $2,608,941 to the cause, according to tax records. During that time, the Institute has reported spending $883,778, just over a third of the total amount that was donated on the charitable purposes outlined in its solicitations. For example, in the 12-month period that ended November 2021, the Institute raised $525,883 in donations. It reported spending $445,000 that year, with its biggest expenses being fundraising fees, conventions, and meetings. Professional fundraising fees, $180,480. Conventions and meetings, $128,172. Management expenses, $65,668. Underprivileged children sent to camp, $57,250. Iowa Special Olympics donation, $10,000. The Institute's tax filings indicate the organization raises money from Iowans largely through direct mail solicitations, some of which bear the signature of an Iowa sheriff. Earlier this year, for example, Central Iowa residents received solicitations on a letterhead that stated in bold letters from Sheriff Kevin Schneider, Polk County, alongside the badge-shaped insignia of the Institute. The letter was signed by Schneider, not as an Institute member, but as the county sheriff who asked for donations to keep our community safe. The letter stated, Your support for the Iowa State Sheriffs and Deputies Association Institute, ISSDAI, is needed today in order for us to provide not only critical support and training to your sheriff's office, but also much-needed funding for our YMCA camp in Boone and Iowa Special Olympics. Unlike most nonprofits, the Institute reports to the IRS that the donations raised by its hired fundraiser are actually membership fees. Out of $525,083 the Institute raised in 2021, It paid $180,480 in fees to its hired fundraiser. The Institute reported to the IRS the fundraiser is a company named Paramount Strategies. However, Paramount Strategies is not a fundraising company. It is a lobbying firm that represents the Iowa State Sheriffs and Deputies Association and other clients at the Iowa Capitol. Company President Tony Phillips said that Paramount Strategies has done no fundraising work for the association or the Institute. Washington County Sheriff Jared Schneider, who is the financial director of the Institute, said he couldn't answer questions about the organization's finances, but that he or someone else would get back to the Iowa Capital Dispatch with information. No one from the Institute subsequently contacted Capital Dispatch, and neither the organization's president nor secretary could be reached for comment. The conventions and meetings of the Iowa State Sheriffs and Deputies Association, which provide some of the training for which donations are solicited, have generated controversy in the past. In 2021, the Institute's annual conference had its keynote speaker, Chris Ann Hall, a Florida lawyer who is among leading proponents of the so-called Constitutional Sheriffs Movement. Hall argues that the federal government has no authority that exceeds that of the nation's elected county sheriffs. She has called government decisions to close down businesses in the midst of COVID-19 pandemic as unlawful and has said America is now full-on Marxist state bent on forcing people to become vaccinated against COVID-19. Because this is America, they have to feed you lies to keep you under their Marxist agenda, Hall said in one of her videos. 
Hall has also questioned the authority of the U.S. Capitol Police, whom she has compared to Nazi Germany's SS, and questioned the FBI's authority to arrest those involved in the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol. The FBI does not have jurisdiction in your state, your county, or your city, Hall has told sheriffs. The sheriff can override the governor and kick the feds out of the county. In 2019, the Southern Poverty Law Center reported that Hall had addressed the Florida chapter of the League of the South, a neo-Confederate organization that the center considers a hate group. In defense of her decision to speak to the group, Hall told the center that our states are not fiefdoms under subjugation to an unquestionable despot. Turning again to Iowa Today and the Week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state under the heading In the News. Reynolds proposes school choice bill. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' key proposal for the Iowa legislative session would allow parents to take advantage of state funding to send their children to a private school. The bill would devote $7,598 to an education savings account that can be used for tuition, supplies, and other expenses. The bill passed a Senate subcommittee Thursday. The program will be open to any student in public school, and by the third year, it will be available to any student in private school as well, regardless of income. Public schools would retain $1,250 in state funding for each child attending private school. The bill also allows schools to use state funds previously devoted to specific purposes to increase teacher salaries. LGBTQ education restrictions floated. Iowa House Republicans proposed bills that would prohibit schools from teaching topics related to gender identity and sexual orientation in grades 1 through 3, drawing comparisons to Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay law. Another bill would prohibit schools from affirming a student's preferred gender identity in school without written consent from their parents. Proponents of the bill say they're meant to give parents more say over how and when LGBTQ topics are brought up in schools. Republicans say it's part of a broader mission of empowering parents in education. Opponents say the measures put LGBTQ students in harm's way and censor teachers. Judiciary faces worker shortages. The Iowa court system is strained by a shortage of court reporters that has been growing for years. Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice Susan Christensen said in this year's Condition of the Judiciary Address that the judicial branch has established a committee to study the issue, and she hopes to bring recommendations by next year. Another occupation facing strains includes contract lawyers who fill gaps to represent Iowans who cannot afford a lawyer. Christensen said contract lawyers should receive higher pay and be reimbursed for travel when they represent clients in multiple counties. A lawmaker on the state's Judicial Budget Committee said his goal is to boost contract lawyers' pay to $100 per hour, phased in over four years, and introduce travel reimbursement. Brenna Byrd to focus on crime. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd, who assumed office this month, said she would bring a new focus on crime and victims to the office as she begins her four-year term. The first Republican to hold the office since 1979, Byrd said she would conduct an audit of the Victim Services Division and find out what accommodations the office could be providing to victims. She also plans to build new cold case and special victims units, as well as advocate for harsh sentences for drug dealers when the sale of a drug results in a death. Byrd also signed on to lawsuits against President Joe Biden's administration, challenging Biden's student loan forgiveness plan and vaccine mandates, among other things. She's now representing the state in Governor Kim Reynolds' bid to reinstate a law that would ban abortion except in the earliest weeks of pregnancy. Under the heading, They Said... Our first priority in this legislative session, and what I will be focusing on over the next four years, is making sure that every child is provided with a quality education that fits their needs. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds on her plans for a private school tuition assistance bill. And 
Iowans didn't like the plan when there were income limits on it. They're certainly not going to like it when it means that a rich family in Des Moines can put their money in savings and take taxpayer dollars to their private school while public schools across the state crumble. House Minority Leader Jennifer Conforst on Reynolds' private school assistance proposal. Under the heading Odds and Ends, National Guard wants recruits. The Iowa National Guard is facing a recruiting problem, the Guard's top general told the Iowa legislature in his Condition of the Guard address this past week. He said the legislature should provide more funds to a scholarship program to help recruit young Iowans. Grassley breaks hip. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican Iowa, underwent surgery last week after fracturing his hip. The 89-year-old senator said in a tweet Wednesday that he was recovering well from the surgery, and his spokesman said his office would provide more information as it became available. Under the heading Water Cooler, COVID Cases Dip, Iowa reported 2,201 new COVID-19 cases in the week ending Wednesday, a slight decrease from the previous week. Fewer people were hospitalized with the virus in the same period, with 222 compared with 248 the previous week. Reynolds to Streamline State Government Governor Kim Reynolds announced a plan to merge the state's 37 executive cabinet agencies into 16. She said the plan was an effort to streamline state government and save costs while retaining and strengthening government services. Reynolds also issued an executive order pausing new administrative rulemaking and directing agencies to review administrative rules and evaluate if there are less restrictive alternatives. Turning to the Insight page, Althea Cole in her To a Candid World column writes, Should public funding be limited to public institutions? Careful what you wish for. With the commencement of the legislative session in the Iowa State House, the debate over one of its focal issues, education reform, now is in full swing. With an expanded majority in the House and a new supermajority in the Senate, this may be the year that state Republicans successfully enact education savings accounts, which would allow state per-pupil education dollars to follow a student to their school of choice. One of the most pom- commonly used slogans in the school choice debate is the phrase, public funds for public schools. It encapsulates encapsulates the position of those opposed to it. Education dollars shouldn't go to students, they should go directly to their assigned public schools. If your child's needs extend beyond what the public system can provide, by all means seek private schooling or home learning, but pay for it yourself. How dare your kid get an equal slice of the education pie? Clearly, I see some fallacy in the notion that education funding should be limited to public institutions. The question is, should it? Should public funding be limited to public institutions? To properly explore that question, Iowans, all Americans really, should consider how many of the current public funding streams pertaining to education and more already make their way to private institutions. The Pell Grant is a federal taxpayer-funded financial aid for college students that can be used at public or private colleges and generally does not need to be repaid. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, more than one-third of undergraduates at private schools finance their education in part with a Pell Grant during the 2015-16 school year. If a Pell Grant recipient receives more than they need for their tuition, the school disperses that money to the student, who may spend it on education-related expenses, such as a computer, without claiming it as taxable income. Student loans, which are expected to be repaid, also are not considered taxable income in Iowa. But when those repayment obligations are forgiven, either fully or in part, student loans essentially become the same type of public funding as Pell Grants. Taxpayers become the permanent payer, many of their public dollars having gone to private institutions. Student loan forgiveness, when compared with school choice, highlights a baffling contradiction in positions taken by activists and lawyers who support one but oppose the other. Senator Claire Selsey, Democrat Des Moines, is one of the most vocal opponents of school choice in the Iowa Senate. Yet Selsey sings the praises of President Joe Biden and his administration for measures announced for forgiveness of up to $20,000 in student loans, regardless of whether those loans funded a public or private education. 
Financed by taxpayers or not, a college education is voluntary and not sought by every person. K-12 education is the opposite. It defies logic that those who have no problem financing private college would also balk at equality-focused funding for compulsory education. It's difficult to meet the objectives of a compulsory education if the child is not developmentally ready for school. Head Start is a federal program created in 1965 for low-income children ages 3 to 5 to help ensure school readiness. Its sister program, Early Head Start, serves children from birth until age 3 along with expectant mothers. Funding for the program is publicly sourced, but many of the institutions providing the services are not. In addition to private nonprofits, for-profit agencies are eligible to receive funding and act as Head Start facilities, provided they meet the other requirements set forth by Health and Human Services. Federal law also states that faith-based organizations may be designated as Head Start agencies. Locally, the Olivet Neighborhood Mission in Cedar Rapids has a Head Start Center for half- and full-day programming. The organization started as a ministry out of the basement of the Olivet Presbyterian Church. In Des Moines, a Head Start Center is operated at Highland Park Christian Church. To promote early childhood wellness, your public dollars are going to private institutions, sometimes even to churches. Education is not the only aspect by which we assess the American quality of life. Healthcare is a strong indicator, and where there are shortcomings, so too are there often public funds to provide aid. For the health of senior citizens and individuals with disabilities, Medicare is financed in part by federal payroll tax revenues. For those near or under the poverty level, Medicaid is funded by state taxpayer dollars, the spending of which is partially matched by the feds. We don't limit the use of those publicly funded services to publicly run institutions. If we did, fewer than half of Iowa's hospitals would be able to accept patients with publicly funded health coverage. Housing and nutrition follow the same trend of public dollars received by private institutions for public good. We don't limit housing choice vouchers, also called Section 8, to publicly owned rental properties, so public dollars can and do enrich private landlords' bottom lines. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, provides monthly dollar amounts for low-income families to spend on groceries, all of which is spent at privately owned stores. Tanner Kraus, CEO of Come and Go in West Des Moines, described school choice last week as another government program that benefits rich families. Meanwhile, his chain of 430 convenience stores, which offer relatively few healthy food options, earn millions in revenue each year from snack food sales, paid for in part with taxpayer-funded SNAP benefits that his business accepts as payment. When all is said and done, it's actually more often than not that public dollars end up being spent at private institutions. Is that really a bad thing? It's worth it to ask ourselves what our quality of life would look like if public dollars could only be used by public entities. What would health care look like for Medicare recipients in Cedar Rapids if the nearest hospital they could visit was in Iowa City? Where would Head Start be if it weren't allowed to blossom through churches and community action programs? Perhaps the problem with education reform isn't that it would divert public money to private institutions. Perhaps the real problem is that we limited the use of those dollars in the first place. If Iowans intend to cling to the notion that public funds should be limited to public institutions, they should be careful what they wish for and what it's already gotten us. And Todd Dorman, in his 24-hour Dorman column, writes, Republicans, tell us what rural Iowa has won. Iowa's election map looks like a red cherry jello mold with a few blueberries trapped inside. Yes, rural Iowans have gone all in on Republican leadership. Statehouse Republicans tell them what they've won. Well, Governor Kim Reynolds is floating a plan that would eventually make every student in Iowa eligible for a $7,588 state-funded scholarship to attend private schools. The hefty price tag of such a scheme will undoubtedly take a chunk out of state funding for public schools. That's bad news for rural public school districts that already are struggling with declining enrollment and rising costs of doing business. Students in many of these districts won't benefit from scholarships because there are no nearby private school options. 
Also, no Republican legislative leader has taken a firm stand on advancing legislation that would protect rural landowners from having their ground taken through eminent domain to accommodate a trio of carbon capture pipelines. If no strong action is taken, reluctant landowners will be left at the mercy of politically connected pipeline companies and the Iowa Utilities Board. But wait, there's more. Twelve years after the Iowa voters created the Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust Fund, the account remains empty. And it's likely to stay that way, stopping potential new investments in outdoor recreation projects that could deliver an economic boost to rural areas. During her condition of the state speech this past week, Governor Kim Reynolds uttered more than 4,700 words. Only three times did she say the word rural, and none of those instances came during her sales pitch for private school vouchers. That's not surprising. Last year, after a number of rural House members balked at supporting a cheaper voucher plan they knew would harm their hometown school districts, Reynolds body-checked several of them out of their seats by supporting their GOP primary opponents. The message was clear. Reynolds wants to spend hundreds of millions of dollars that otherwise fund public schools to pay for vouchers. If rural lawmakers stand in the way, she'll take them out. If her plans end up harming rural schools, so be it. Besides, the governor said improving public schools isn't about money. Try telling that to a small-town superintendent trying to pay the bills, deal with a shortage of applicants for empty teaching positions, and reluctantly curtailing programs due to scarce resources. When I think of a small-town school district, I naturally think of my dear alma mater, Bellman Clemmy. Okay, it was just Bellman when I attended during the rotary dial phone epoch. On you Broncos, on you Broncos, buck and rear and fight. Okay, sorry. Belmont Clemmy's enrollment has been slowly but steadily dropping. Its certified enrollment, according to the Department of Ed, was 812 students in 2016-17. Its certified enrollment this year is 740. That drop means lost state funding. There are two very small K-8 parochial schools within 20 miles, each with roughly 30 students, but it's a longer trip to full K-12 private schools. Mason City is 42 miles away, Fort Dodge is 52 miles away, and Algona is 46 miles from Belmont. That's a long daily commute. So what's in the governor's plan for Belmont Clemmy? Based on my public school math education, I think the answer can be best represented as a fraction. Diddly over squat. Continued inadequate state funding, exacerbated by spending big bucks on private school scholarships, will be a loss for the Broncos, as well as many of the Tigers, Bulldogs, Wildcats, and Lions out there. Parts of Wright County, where Belmont is located, will be crisscrossed by the Summit Carbons Solutions Pipeline. Landowners who don't want to accommodate the pipeline can buck and rear and fight all they want, but without legislative help, they're unlikely to win. A bill last year that would have stopped the use of eminent domain was quietly killed. What about this year? We're hearing from enough Iowans that we feel we've let this process play, Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley told the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. That's what I said last year. Let's let this process play and see what it does. And now we've had enough of the process play through. We've heard from enough Iowans that I think you're going to see something. What that is exactly, I'm not in a position where I can tell you, but I know the caucus is hearing enough from their constituents. Seeing something would be something. I've seen Cherry Jello take a more solid stand. To be fair, Democrats aren't exactly clamoring for action to halt the land grab. And that's because politicians in both parties are soaking in ethanol. That's the industry the pipelines are designed to prop up by making corn fuel appear greener. Pipeline backers are vying for billions of dollars in federal tax credits to bankroll the projects. The Summit Project is backed by Republican mega-donor Bruce Rastetter, former Republican Governor Terry Branstead, and Jess Vilsack, son of former Democratic Governor and current U.S. Secretary of Egg Tom Vilsack. The Biden administration has made vastly increasing the availability of carbon pipeline tax credits a centerpiece of its climate agenda. All three members of the Iowa Utilities Board, which will decide whether eminent domain can be used on the project, were appointed by Branstead and Reynolds. The IUB already has decided pipeline companies aren't required by Iowa law to conduct environmental impact studies. 
Pipeline projects are being shoved ahead despite the fact new federal pipeline safety rules are still being written. County boards of supervisors elected by rural Iowans face lawsuits for trying to enact local pipeline setbacks and safety ordinances. As for the Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust Fund, Senator Dan Dawson, Republican Council Bluffs, is floating a plan to eliminate local option sales taxes while adding a cent to the state sales tax. The trust fund would get three-eighths of that cent, while cities and counties with local option taxes would get the rest. But not all jurisdictions in Iowa charge the local tax, so that would mean a sales tax increase for those Iowans. Do I expect any of this to turn cherry red Iowa to blue raspberry or even purple grape? No, not really. But I'd just be happy if rural voters considered how Republicans are taking them for granted while insulting their intelligence with manufactured fears of radical socialists, gun grabbers, and school litter boxes. These hard-to-swallow legislative actions and inactions should at least prompt them to consider breaking the mold. And the letters to the editor and the uh, editorial cartoon today, the editorial cartoon from Tim Campbell, a syndicated cartoonist distributed by CounterPoint Media. There's a caricature of Joe Biden saying, I'm here to look at the border crisis problem. And what appears to be a caricature of a border patrol agent is holding up a handheld mirror to President Biden saying, let me know when you've seen, when you've seen enough. The first community letter today is from Harry Graves of Coralville. Kim Reynolds was inaugurated governor of Iowa on Friday, January 13th, 2023. How fitting. Harry Graves of Coralville. The next letter is from Herman Lenz of Sumner. Lawmakers prioritize the needs of hunters. Everything that has gone through the Iowa legislature in regard to hunting has been in favor of hunters. Now they can use long-range rifles between .223 and .50 caliber. They'd legalize the use of machine guns and helicopters if hunters had them. Iowa lawmakers know where their election funding comes from, and it doesn't come from the animal welfare activists. Herman Lenz of Sumner. Next, Joe Rowetter of Iowa City says cartoon mocks voters in their concerns. This letter is in response to the political cartoon of December 28th, It implies that Trump voters are stupid. I ask you, is it stupid to want the return of secure southern border, energy independence, a military that is made up of warriors, not wokesters, or due respect from our enemies and allies? These are just a few of the many anti-American policies now taking place under the Biden administration. Joe Rowetter of Iowa City. Next, Joel Snell of Cedar Rapids writes, Don't fall for tricks during tax talks. On a per capita basis, a few rich people own most of the productive property. Therefore, the rest of us pay increased taxes if the economy goes south. Who pays? The big payers are blue-collar Roman Catholics and working-class evangelicals. Property taxes can be a real scam. The whole discussion about taxes can really be lost in language and numbers not understood by most of us. So let's not defund the police or related. It is another Republican trick. Joel Snell of Cedar Rapids. Next, Robin Skogman of Cedar Rapids writes, Recent content not fit for front page. The Gazette's attempts at reader indoctrination and acceptance of deviant behavior and lifestyle are becoming tiresome. The headline of Monday's newspaper, Queering the Family Farm, Bennett Goldstein, Wisconsin Watch, January 2nd, and subsequent article was without merit and simply pointless as a truly front-page headline news story. Stop trying to convince readers that your editors, staff, reporters, etc. are smarter and more important than they really are. Apparently, you missed the point of the public's overwhelming rejection of the Gazette's endorsements after the last election. The results were an indication of the worthless and inconsequential ideas your paper promotes. Perhaps you need to concentrate on the original value of a newspaper by simply reporting the news. Robin Skogman of Cedar Rapids. And William Wines of Marion writes, Legislature should address robocalls. For the past two weeks, I have been getting automated calls, a.k.a. robocalls, several times a day, starting at 8 a.m. and continuing until 8 or 9 p.m. for a lady named Phyllis. Apparently, Phyllis once had my number. 
but I currently have the number and have had it for the last four years. Citibank's robocall said it's very important that the listener call a specific 800 number to discuss a Shop Your Way MasterCard account. I fail to comprehend how this matter could be important because when I called the number, Citibank would not let me talk to a representative unless I had the password for a protected extension. The password requires a Capital One account number. It was shrewd of the bank to protect itself from unwanted calls, such as mine, to inform the bank that it is harassing the wrong household over a credit card. I understand our legislature is meeting now supposedly to do the people's business. Perhaps instead of working on hot-button non-issues, they might regulate robocalls as other states have done. For instance, the legislature could start by requiring all calls to residential numbers be made by real people who have the knowledge and authority to discuss and fixed issues raised by their call. Maybe listening to each other and discussing solutions might come back into vogue. William Wines of Marion. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 15th, 2023 on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. And I am your rear, Sharon Faldudo. We turn to today's obituaries. In the other notices, Jeffrey Dave Borgensen, age 53, of Cedar Rapids, died Thursday, January 12th. G. Leroy Swore, age 85, of Cedar Rapids, died Thursday, January 12th. And Connie J. Goldsberry, age 77, of Solon, died on January 13th. David Andrew Thompson, age 71, a lifelong Cedar Rapids resident, passed away in his sleep at St. Luke's Hospital on January 11th following a brief illness. A private family service will be held Monday, January 16th at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories with interment at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery following the service. He was a veteran, honorably discharged from the U.S. Army in 1974. He maintained a keen interest in military field artillery tactics, especially as they were applied during World War II. He was an avid fan of both the NFL and NASCAR his entire life. Joshua Paul Usher, age 49, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on January 4th. Joshua will always be remembered for his great sense of humor. He put a lot of effort into getting a laugh with holiday decorating, art, costumes, playing pranks, and telling jokes. A celebration of life will be held May 3rd. More details to follow. Susan Marie Kula Frischkorn, age 77, of Cedar Rapids, died at her home Thursday, January 12th, after a hard-fought battle with cancer. Funeral Mass, 10 a.m. Wednesday at St. Wenceslas Catholic Church by Father Aaron Jungie. Burial, St. Joseph Cemetery in Prairieburg. Friends may call from 4 to 8 p.m. Tuesday at Papage Cuba Funeral Home East, 1228 2nd Street Southeast, where a rosary will be prayed at 4 p.m. by the Catholic Daughters of the Americas, and a vigil service will begin at 7 p.m. Susan flourished as a wife and mother and a grandmother, knowing it was her true calling in life. She happily got involved in many school activities, teaching CCD, was a Girl Scout leader for many years, and so much more. During retirement, Susan was very active at St. Wenceslas. She was a member of St. Bridget's Circle, baked kolaches, a member of St. Monica's Circle, delivered communion to the homebound, cooked for funeral luncheons, volunteered in the church office, and much more. She was especially passionate in her work with the Catholic Daughters of the Americas. A member for 14 years, holding the office of regent and vice-regent, Susan was involved in countless charitable, faith-enriching activities. Betty R. Weston, age 94, of Cedar Rapids, peacefully passed on January 10th. Her family will hold a private celebration of Betty's life at a later date. Betty was a wonderful cook, cheerleader, homemaker, pet owner, and counselor, attending all manner of music, athletic, and other family events. She was a devout Christian and had a large extended family. She was a loyal fan of the Iowa Hawkeyes, rarely missing a football or basketball game. Deborah Jane Nugent, born Deborah Jane Kreitner and known as Debbie, gained her heavenly wings on January 6th at age 55. 
A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 19th at Cedar Memorial Chapel Stateroom. A funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. Friday, January 20th at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. A live stream of her funeral service may be accessed on the funeral home website. Debbie was employed by Collins Aerospace, where she held positions in both mission systems and information technology for over 25 years. Her most recent position was as technical manager in IT cybersecurity, where she performed firewall administration for the company. Traveling was one of her favorite pastimes, especially if it ended in a trip with a winery. She was a lifelong member of Zion Lutheran Church in Shellsburg. Terrence Joseph Claypool, known as Terry, age 59, of Cedar Rapids, died January 3rd at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Haspas House of Mercy following a short illness. Services, 1.30 p.m. Saturday, January 21st at TN Funeral Home by Penny Ackerman. Burial, St. Joseph Cemetery. Friends may visit with the family on Saturday after 12.30 p.m. at TN Funeral Home. Terry enjoyed listening to music, watching football and old westerns, collecting matchbox cars, playing tennis with his sister Colleen, and boxing each other in their basement. Walter Hartle, known as Walt, age 81, passed away on January 2nd in Cedar Rapids. A celebration of life will be held from 4 to 8 p.m. January 20th at Cherie's Dance Studio, 4000 Center Point Northeast in Cedar Rapids. Walt spent 35 years as a semi-driver for roadway. Ernest Wright, age 88, of Cedar Rapids, died January 9th following a brief illness. And I don't see any services listed for Ernest. Harvey Hop Jr., known as Harv, age 80, passed away peacefully and without pain Monday, December 26th, due to complications from a stroke. He was a Navy brat, and he lived in five states as well as Puerto Rico and Panama until finally setting in Cedar Rapids. He joined the Marines and served dutifully for four years and was honorably discharged. He was hired to teach driver's ed at Kennedy High School in 1970, where he would enjoy a 30-year tenure, during which he also coached boys and girls swimming and diving, boys' gymnastics, and boys' track and field weight events, guiding multiple state champions. In addition to this, Harvey essentially ran the school weight room, or Hop's Body Shop, for nearly two decades. Harvey, it was Harvey's wish not to have a formal service. Instead, a celebration of Harvey's life will be held at a later date, yet to be determined. Colonel Roger Thomas Hilton, retired of Niederbuschos, Germany, peacefully passed away on December 4th in Germany, one day before his 82nd birthday. Serve, there is no memorial service planned at this time, but you can reach out to his sister Jill if you have memories. James Robert Sherlock II, 76, better known as Sharky, passed away peacefully on Friday, January 6th. A celebration of life open house will be held between 1 to 4 p.m. Saturday, February 18th at the Stone Creek Golf Club Clubhouse in Williamsburg, 812 Long Street in Williamsburg. Burial will be at Holy Sepulchre Cemetery in Illinois. Jim lived in Williamsburg for most of his adult life where he owned and operated several businesses. He will be remembered for his carefree approach to life and his unmatched gift of storytelling. He greeted most everyone with a God love you kid and was never without a joke or a magic trick to share. Will Kirkland of Cedar Rapids died peacefully following a stroke on January 5th. A celebration of Will's life will take place at a later date. Will was born August 8th, 1944. He was a professor emeritus 
He taught at Mount Marcy University, where he taught for 31 years before retiring as Professor Emeritus. He explored his creative side during retirement and thoroughly enjoyed his second career as an artist. He was passionate about riding his bike, twice completing Ragbri, and he loved coffee and rooting for the Iowa Hawkeyes. Eric Spa of Cedar Rapids passed away after an accident on May 6, 2022. Eric was diagnosed with juvenile diabetes when he was nine years old, but that never stopped him from living a very active life. Played varsity football for Washington High School, raced motocross across the Midwest, and competed in stock car racing. He won multiple track championships at Hawkeye Downs Speedway, and in 2009, along with his two brothers, Eric was inducted into the Hawkeye Downs Wall of Fame. Eric worked for the City of Cedar Rapids Water Department for 22 years. No services are planned at this time, as a celebration of life was held last August. Marion Taylor Anton, age 96, of Cedar Rapids, died peacefully January 7th in Cedar Rapids. Marion was an IBM machine operator at National Data Processing, started in 1958, later known as Network Data Processing, where as a single mother, she rose to serve as president of the company from 1987 to 1989. She later worked in various positions and retired in 2006 at age 80. In retirement, she remained an avid cook, gardener, reader, and worldwide traveler, passions she pursued throughout her life. She was also a president of the Cedar Rapids Health Center and president of Jane Boyd Community House, and her enthusiasm for classical music led to an interest of opera. She became a founding member of the Cedar Rapids Opera Theater, and she served on its board for many years. Her family and close friends plan to celebrate her life at a gathering this summer. Sandra Brown Pink Carney, known as Sandy, age 85, of Cedar Rapids, was called to peace on Wednesday, January 11th. Tian Funeral Home is assisting the family. Robert C. Gignac, age 89, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully on December 6th. For the last few years, this self-proclaimed grumpy old man was living independently, defying COVID, but a recent stroke changed that scene. Cremation rites were recorded by Iowa Cremation. He worked for the U.S. Postal Service for over 30 years, and then he was a, enjoyed being the commander of his RV, traveling the USA with mom for 25 years, seeing wonderful, wonderful sights, and making friends along the way. A memorial mass will be held at 11 a.m. Friday, January 20th, at St. Pius X Catholic Church, 4949 Council Street Northeast, in Cedar Rapids, and an inurement ceremony will take place July 21st at Great Lakes Veterans Cemetery, 4200 Belford Road in Holly, Michigan. Terry Minninger Grote Anton, age 79, of the Villages, Villages, Florida, died Saturday, December 24, 2022. Cremation services have already taken place. Terry held positions at General Electric, manager of computed tomography marketing, Boeing Aerospace, Boeing's first remote software quality engineer, United States Postal Service, ARINC, senior director of air traffic services, until her retirement. Then back to bookkeeping at Howard County Community College to earn a certificate as a certified bookkeeper. Kim W. Schulte, age 65, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Monday, January 9th. There will be no services. Conway Southard of Cedar Rapids, known as Bud, Cedar Rapids and Emporia, Kansas, was one day shy of his 92nd birthday when he died on December 25, 2022. He joined the U.S. Marine Corps when he was 17. Back from service in the Korean War, he worked and went to school, achieving his bachelor's in engineering. Bud spent most of his engineering years at Rockwell Collins and retired in 1992. At that time and after, he enjoyed other varieties of work and play. 
teaching and mentoring in the field of computers, facilitating driver improvement and OWI classes, and ham radio. His greatest joy in retirement was teaching motorcycle safety classes and sharing his joy of motorcycling. In his last days, Bud was visited by family and friends and was happy at home. Thomas Angier Ayers III of Norman, Oklahoma, passed away from a long illness on January 11th. Tom received his pharmacy degree from the University of Iowa, and his first job was with May Drug in Cedar Rapids, followed by the University of Hospitals and Clinics. In 1972, he bought Star Drug in Williamsburg and settled into small-town life. During this time, he served on the Williamsburg Community Schools School Board. Music was always an important part of his life. He took after his father and played the clarinet. After retiring, he played bass clarinet with the Oklahoma City Symphonic Band and the University of Oklahoma New Horizons Band. He served for many years as music librarian for the Oklahoma City Symphonic Band. And June E. Dunham Warren, known as Tinker, age 77, passed away at home on January 11th with her husband by her side. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, January 18th at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service. Celebration of life, 1 to 3 p.m. Thursday, January 19th at the funeral home. June was employed by Collins Radio, Turner Communications, Norand, and Pioneer Seed Sorting. Turning to the sports page and in college basketball, 5,000 miles from home, Rabraka has made great strides in his second season as a Hawkeye. By Mike Loss of the Gazette in Iowa City, Philip Rabraka is sort of a man without a country, but Iowa is embracing him. The University of Iowa men's basketball player was born in Italy, lived in Greece for a bit, and spent several of his childhood bouncing around the U.S., while his father played for three NBA teams from 2001 to 2007. He is introduced at games as being from Serbia, which is true. However, he hasn't lived there for five years. Rabraka has spent the last year and a half in Iowa, a six-foot-nine center who has emerged as a major contributor for the Hawkeyes. He started all 36 games last season after transferring from North Dakota, but had a modest scoring average of 5.8 points after averaging 16.8 his last season with UND. From a defensive and rebounding standpoint, from an execution and basketball IQ standpoint, he was terrific last year, Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey said. There's no way we win 26 games without him in the starting lineup. But this season is different nonetheless. Rabaka is averaging 14.4 points and 8.9 rebounds. He has become a fan favorite for his aggressive, passionate, productive play. He is up from 22.2 minutes per Big Ted game last year to 35.2 this season. That's a lot for a 230-pounder. I feel like every morning I wake up, there's a new spot that hurts, he said. You just have to battle through it. I feel like that's where my Serbian toughness comes in. In the four December games in which teammate and leading scorer Chris Murray was out with an injury, Rabraka averaged 21.5 points. He has remained forceful in the five games since Murray's return with averages of 15.4 points and 10.4 rebounds. Thursday, against Michigan's 7'1", two-time All-Big Ten Hunter Dickinson, Rabraka put a tough first half behind him and totaled 12 points and 13 rebounds in the Hawkeyes' 93-84 overtime win. He drew seven fouls. Rabraka had averaged 16.8 points the season before as a junior at North Dakota. Then he moved to Iowa, where a good part of last season's scoring was in the capable hands of Keegan Murray and Jordan Bohannon. I felt like last year I didn't have to do it, Rabraka said, but also my confidence wasn't there to do it. His father, Zeliko Rabraka, can relate to adjusting to a bigger stage in the sport, having left Europe as a 29-year-old to play in the NBA. Now the president of Serbian pro basketball team KK Vojovina, he is a household name in the Eastern European nation of 7.2 million. Zeljiko played on two Euro League championships. 
He had 16 points and 11 rebounds for Yugoslavia in its 1998 World Championship title game over Russia. The U.S. finished third. The seven-foot Zeljiko averaged 10.6 points for the Yugoslavia team that earned the silver medal at the 1996 Atlanta Summer Olympics, losing 95-69 to the star-studded second U.S. Dream Team in the championship after leading by seven points in the first half. We lost in the last 10 minutes, Zeljiko said in slightly broken English via a recent Zoom call with Philippe and the Gazette. Then he laughed as he added, they played golf all day, then speeded up in the last 10 minutes. In Serbia, it was a special time. People didn't live good, no money or nothing. When we won the first European championship in 95 and also in 96, the silver medal, we bring a lot of good energy to regular people in Serbia. Everybody at home was like 20 people around a TV watching the games. Now when I go to a pharmacy, I see an old lady who is 80 years old who says, you must be Robraka. I watched you when I was young. Serbia has sent about 30 players to the NBA, the most notable being Basketball Hall of Famer Vlade Divac and reigning two-time NBA Most Valuable Player Nikola Jožić. Divac was Eljiko's Olympic teammate, and Jokic is from the same city as Philippe's listed hometown, Sombor. Jokic here is like Beatles in England, Zeljiko said, but you know what? In Serbia, you must win something with national team to be great. They say, okay, you are a two-time MVP, but you must win something with national team. Zeljiko signed with the NBA's Detroit Pistons in 2001, seven years after he had originally been drafted by the Seattle Supersonics. Here's where he relates to his son's basketball journey. When I arrived in Detroit, I was starting from ground zero, he said. In Europe, I already had a name. Zeljiko played five NBA seasons, then finished his 16-year pro career in Spain. His oldest son has made jumps of his own from a prep school in Massachusetts to a mid-major college program in North Dakota to the Big Ten in Iowa. I remember when he goes to Boston, the prep school, Zeljiko said, nobody wants him. After Boston, only North Dakota calls him. So after three years in Dakota, 25 teams ask for him. He chose Iowa, which Zeljiko pronounces Iowa, an easy decision for him. Philippe has a basketball father who tries not to be one. We talk at least once a week, Zeljiko said, but I don't want to talk a lot to make up his mind. Before, I was like a coach. He didn't like that. So I tried to leave him and don't put pressure on him. He has coaches over there. I enjoyed getting to know Zeljiko through the recruiting process, McCaffrey said. He's trusted us to coach his son, and that's how it's done. We appreciate that. I appreciate Philippe every day. Work ethic is not an issue that you would ever have to discuss with Philippe Robraca. If anything, you might tell him to get out of the gym one day and relax. That's an expectation. It's not something that they bring up. Zeljiko agreed, saying, I remember as a kid, Philippe was prepared for the practice two hours before. I wasn't like that. I was a little bit lazier than him. I need the guy who will push me. It isn't as easy to see college basketball online in Eastern Europe as it is in the States. Zeljiko said, I try to watch on the YouTube highlights the next day. This for me is difficult. I don't have channels in Serbia. I see it the next day in some recordings. I'm alive. I can see the results and statistics. But what he has seen, what we in Iowa have witnessed from Philippe. I think he took responsibility to move one step ahead, Zeljiko said. He gained the confidence. I knew he had that, but didn't believe that initially. He just needed to take responsibility to bring the team and himself on the next level. I love what I can see this season, what energy he brings to the team. When he doesn't score a lot of points, he brings a lot of good energy and the guys believe in him. This season, he scores a lot. He rebounds good. Whether Philippe can make an NBA roster is uncertain, but she had no problem getting a pro basketball contract somewhere with his game and size. When asked what he wants for his son, Zeljiko said, I don't want to say because he is listening. He needs to continue to work hard and to finish the season in a great way. I want him to be happy and to play basketball in the right way, and we'll see what's going to happen. He took his path, and I'm proud of him. And the Time Machine today is also the front page of the Iowa Today, a look back at the people, places, and events of eastern Iowa. The Indian Creek Nature Center marks its 50th year by Diane Fannin-Langton, correspondent in Cedar Rapids. 
Indian Creek Nature Center in southeast Cedar Rapids will be celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. The idea for a nature center started when Junior League member and conservationist Betty Barron, B.B. Stamatz, visited one in the Twin Cities and brought the idea home. I was captivated by the idea of a nature center, and I thought it would be an intriguing and neat thing to do, she said in 1993. She and fellow Junior Leaguer Gene O'Donnell brought up the idea to league meeting, but other members thought it was a bigger chunk than the club could handle, Stamatz said. Gene and I were totally naive and innocent then, Stamatz said, but we thought, let's give it a try, and we put our heads together. After getting support from the National Natural Science for Youth Foundation, the pair formed a 40-member citizens committee to pursue the idea and raise $150,000. After considering several sites, the committee settled on city-owned land at Bertram and Otis Roads in southeast Cedar Rapids, where the City and Parks Commissioner Stan Rinas offered to lease them the tract for $1 a year. The city had bought the 140-acre wooded site, once a dairy farm, in 1968. Indian Creek ran through the property, and the Sac and Fox Trail cut through it. A tile dairy barn, built in 1932, sat on six acres across the road from the woods at 6665 Otis Road and was envisioned as a place for nature exhibits. In January 1973, the steering committee decided to incorporate as a nonprofit and rely on donations, grants, and fundraising for its operations. It established a 24-member board of directors with Bill Schneider as president, Dwayne Arnold and Gene O'Donnell as vice presidents, B.B. Stamatz as secretary, and Bruce Samsel as treasurer. It remains Iowa's only independently owned and operated nature center. Curtis Abduk, who had worked at the Fontenelle Forest Center in Omaha, was hired as the center's first director. He arrived in late 1973 and began making plans. The first activity at the center happened on Groundhog Day, February 2, 1974, a guided walk through the woods in search of groundhogs or woodchucks. The center's first half-mile of foot trail opened August 25, 1974, and was called Discovery Trail. The loop trail originates near the large barn, meanders through woods and openings, then drops to the floodplain where the confluence of Indian Creek and the Cedar River can be viewed, the Gazette reported. The trail then swings back along the east bank of Indian Creek and terminates at the barn. Both natural features and man-made changes on the landscape will be interpreted. Renovation of the Pennegroth Tile Barn began in November 1974 after a capital fund drive. The exterior gained a small addition but remained basically unchanged. Inside, the lower level was remodeled to hold exhibits, restrooms, a workroom, and sales area. The hayloft was turned into 100-seat auditorium and administrative offices. In February 1975, the Weyerhaeuser Foundation donated $7,500 to convert the 35-foot silo into an observatory tower. The platform at the top allowed visitors to see the landscape by day and the stars at night. It was dedicated October 26th. The dedication and grand opening of the Nature Center headquarters was held June 1, 1975, and included dedication of the Sac and Fox Trail as a national recreation trail. The Indian Creek Nature Center Guild was formed August 1975, with members hosting a Harvest Fest dinner and weekly craft workshops and also running a gift shop. December brought Armchair Adventures, a series of winter programs at the center. Abduck left the center in early 1978 to take a job with the National Wildlife Foundation Federation. His successor was Rich Patterson, who had been director of the Dillon Outdoor Education Center in Hutchinson, Kansas. Patterson started August 22nd and would oversee the Nature Center's growth, operations, and fundraising for the next 36 years. By the time Patterson retired in 2014, the Nature Center covered about 300 acres. It had funds in reserve and an endowment. He moved to an office downtown and started raising money for a new Nature Center headquarters. United Fire Group and the McIntyre Foundation gave $400,000 toward the Capitol campaign with the request the new amphitheater by the building be named for Patterson and his family. John Myers took over as the center's director and oversaw construction of the center's new headquarters. 
The 12,000 square foot, $6 million building called Amazing Space opened in 2016 at 5300 Otis Road Southeast, just down the road from the former dairy barn. Myers was on hand in June 2016 when George Etzel and his family donated 192 acres of timber and farmland near Alburnett and the Cedar Valley Nature Trail to the center and set up an endowment to pay for the property's maintenance. The gift, valued at more than $1 million, was the largest land gift ever received by the Nature Center, putting a total of 482 acres under its ownership and management. The center is planning a variety of events this year to note its 50-year milestone, culminating with an October 14th celebration. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 15th, 2023. I have selected and lightly edited the articles and read to you, as usual, from my kitchen table in Coralville. I have been your reader, Sharon Faldudo. Remember that you can access a recording of this or any other Iris recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. We welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.